Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality they make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. The first broadcast of Voice of Israel, Israeli Radio, was at one minute before four o'clock in the afternoon on May 14, 1948, just one minute before David Ben-Gurion began to declare the state of Israel. How did the radio begin? What did they say? The announcers, there were two announcers, they said, listen to Voice of Israel. And the two announcers were at the same place where the ceremony of the Declaration of State of Israel was held. This was in Museum of Tel Aviv. Izi Man, a veteran Voice of Israel broadcaster and the country's chief radio historian, is describing what would have normally been the highlight of any broadcasting career. But reality, it turns out, was a bit less glamorous. They were sitting in the toilet cabins of the museum because there was not enough place for them to sit. That's right. The live declaration of the State of Israel brought to you from the bathroom. It was a very small hall. Only the signatories of the State of Israel and the rabbi that was there and few other people were in the main hall. From time to time during the ceremony, uh, two journalists came from the main hall to the area of the toilet and gave them notes saying what is happening now or what will happen later so they could say something. Everything about the ceremony and the broadcast was last minute. That night, at midnight, the British mandate over Palestine was scheduled to end. It was a Friday afternoon. And it was held very secretly because they were afraid that if people know where it would happen, Egyptian uh, airplanes would come and bomb the place. A small team of radio engineers had been working around the clock to get this live broadcast up and running. They took from the main studios of uh, Voice of Jerusalem, the former radio station of the British Mandate, 
each time they took some technical equipment with them. In one case, they took it in a convoy that went from Jerusalem to Tel Aviv, and one woman pretended that she was pregnant, and under her dress, she hided uh, some pieces of equipment. And in Tel Aviv, they gathered all these uh, pieces together to build a kind of a transmitter. They finished all the installations, luckily, uh, half an hour before. And, uh, of course, they were still afraid because uh, the transmitter was not that strong at these times. So as Ben-Gurion read the declaration, Many of the citizens of the new state couldn't actually hear him. Some people say that they heard it even in the Galilee, although the transmitter was very, very weak. Uh, some people said that in Jerusalem they couldn't hear it, but still people heard about it. I imagine it was crucial for Ben-Gurion and for the government that the citizens actually hear the Declaration of Independence on the radio. Of course, this is the, the meaning of declaration. I mean, if you declare something, you want that people know about it. And in a time well before TV or the internet, the way people knew about things was from the radio. The radio in these times was really a piece of furniture in the middle of the living room. And that's how, very quickly, everyone heard the news. The rumor began to spread somehow, and of course everybody spoke about it. People were dancing. Hey, I'm Mishi Harman, and this is Israel Story. Israel Story is brought to you by PRX and is produced together with Tablet Magazine. Our episode today is part one of a two-part series called 68 and Counting. It's based on a live show that we just finished touring the States with. Basically, these two episodes are a journey through the story of Israel. Over the last few months, we've spent endless hours in all kinds of archives, learning everything we could about Israel's Independence Day, Yom Ha'atzmaut. We were looking for little stories, bite-sized ones, that took place on Yom Ha'atzmaut itself, in ten-year intervals, and that somehow reflected their era. So we're going to march together in extravagant military parades, hopefully hit some fadeaway jump shots, try not to topple governments over sexy lingerie, and much, much more. Part one will take us from 1948 to 1978. And part two, our season finale, will bring us up to date. All right, here we go. Ten years after that first radio broadcast, things were kind of rough in Israel. But even though there were rations on food and gas and people were lining up for bread, the government decided to throw a huge party on Independence Day, Chagigat HaAsor. 
There was a big exhibit, kind of like a state fair in Jerusalem. The Dead Sea Scrolls were on display there, as was the original copy of the Declaration of Independence. There were also all kinds of other Israeli innovations. Solar panels, sprinklers, Uzi guns. Israel's president, Itzhak ben Svi, opened the exhibit with what was supposed to be some sort of spectacular light show. He ceremoniously proclaimed, Let there be light, press the button, and the whole electrical circuit crashed. That very same day, a slightly embarrassed ben Svi went home and received a delegation of Persian Jews in his tzrif, his hut, which was the president's official residence. The delegation came bearing a gift, all the way from Iran, a giant Persian rug. The next day it was even written up in a tiny announcement in the newspapers. Now, once we stumbled upon that little article, we became obsessed with finding that carpet. And we did. All the gifts that President Bensvi received back in the 50s and 60s are stashed away in the basement of the Bensvi Institute in Jerusalem, including that carpet. But one of the researchers there had some bad news for us. Uh, we can't take out the carpet, but uh, I can show you a picture and we can speak about it. The carpet, she insisted, was way too big and heavy to schlep out of storage. We did get a glimpse of it, rolled up in the corner. And Tamar, that's the researcher, explained how more than 30,000 Persian Jews came to Israel in the 50s, almost 6,000 of them in 1958. Many, like those delegates, brought their carpets to the Holy Land. In the next story, Daniel Estrin tells us that that's not all they brought, and what they did or didn't bring often had far-reaching consequences. This is a story of two men, a sewing machine, a bicycle, and, of course, carpets. Esther Shkalim was one of the Olim Chadashim, the new immigrants from Iran, who came to Israel in 1958. She was four. And the story she told us is the story of two very important men in her life. Her father and her uncle. Her father went from rags to riches. Her uncle from riches to rags. And it was one small thing that made all the difference. Our story starts far away in Isfahan, in Iran. The family of my father was very poor. They were uh, 13 children with father and mother in uh, one room. Of course, all of them sleep on one carpet. And they liked it. Esther's father, Peretz, was eight years old when he started going to work with his dad. That meant hopping on a donkey and trekking to the surrounding mountain villages to sell fabrics and women's knickknacks. A few years later, Peretz's father saved up enough money to open up a shop. Peretz worked there. And Esther says... He was a ladies' man. The women liked very much uh, to buy from him because he's very, very, very handsome man. Very, very handsome. And yes, and he could speak very, very nicely to them. And some of them also wanted to go with him. <laughs> but he was very afraid. He did not take the chance. If he wants, I don't know. I think so. <laughs> Maybe he wants. He was a young man. One of Peretz's older sisters was married to a successful tailor in Tehran, Musa. Musa made suits for the officials who worked for the Shah. I mean, he earned very good money. He had money. But in the early 50s, Musa the tailor decided to give it all up and immigrate to Israel. 
he packed his most prized possession, his sewing machine, and he met up with the folks from the Jewish agency. He arrived at the, to the airplane in Tehran, and uh, he had his uh, sewing machine. And then, then they, uh, they told him, you can take it in the same plane, because there are many people here, and the plane will be too heavy. And so they asked him to leave it, and it will come in, uh, in other, with other planes. I don't know who exactly, uh, but the Jewish people told him. Jewish people of Jewish agency. So he handed over his sewing machine. When he landed in Israel, it was nowhere to be found. They told him uh, the, the plan was burned. We don't have it anymore. They told him that the plane exploded in the air. Yes, we are very, 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 very sorry. This wasn't, Esther has discovered, an isolated case. The people who cheated were bad men that uh, took advantage that the other people were very innocent. They did not believe that Jewish people would cheat them. Without his sewing machine, Musa the tailor couldn't be Musa the tailor anymore. He didn't have the money to buy a new one. He spent the rest of his life doing menial jobs. And he died uh, very young. Very, very young, yeah, he died. In the summer of 1958, following his brother-in-law, Peretz also came to Israel with his pregnant wife and three kids. But none of his stuff was lost in transit. Esther thinks that by then, immigrants could no longer be fooled so easily. When the family arrived in Israel, they were sent to a development town built especially for immigrants called Chatzor Haglilit, just above the Sea of Galilee. Which was a very little hole in Israel. (laughs) It was nowhere. Their neighbors were immigrants from North Africa and the Middle East, living in shacks, some in tents. Many of them were skilled merchants and craftsmen. But in Israel, they found themselves out of jobs and out of step with the dominant Ashkenazi culture. The Shkalim family was also struggling. The Iranian cash parrots had brought with him was worth nothing in Israel. This wasn't the life he dreamt of when he left Iran. But here he was, and he needed to support his family. So he began selling some of the Persian carpets he had schlepped to Israel. There was one thing he brought from Iran, however, that he did not sell. And that soon proved to be a game-changer. His bicycle. Peretz worked out a scheme. Every morning, he'd hire a taxi, tie his bicycle to the roof of the taxi, fill the backseat with rugs, and asked the driver to drop him off somewhere, anywhere. Jerusalem, Beersheba, Haifa. When he got there, he'd mount all the carpets on his bicycle and start pedaling around. He uh, drive around Haifa and uh, called Shatichim, Shatichim, carpets, carpets, and everybody come and buy. I went in the morning with the carpets, Peretz says. And in the evening, I would come back without carpets. During the day, as he was riding around more established neighborhoods, people would laugh at him. They'd call him Parsi Medune. Parsi Medune, it means, you know Persian? And this why they, they called him Parsi Medune. Like the people from Iraq, they called him Iraqi pyjama because their suits were like pyjama. And there were many nicknames. The Ashkenazi, they call Vusvus. 
if they talk to somebody that don't know Yiddish, they ask them, Vuz? Vuz? What? What? Everybody in Israel will call them Vuz Vuz. <laughs> One day, during a carpet-selling trip to Kibbutz Stable Care in the Negev, Peretz met a very important Vuz Vuz. The white-haired Vuz Vuz in question? It was none other than Israel's first prime minister, David Ben-Gurion. He told me that Ben-Gurion asked him uh, how it is in Israel, and my father told him that it's very difficult for the Iranian people here, but uh, we like our country, Jewish country, oh, I like this. And he tried to sell to him uh, a carpet, but he <laughs> did not succeed. <laughs> Peretz Shkalim did this every day for years. He'd wake up at 5 a.m., leave with his carpets and his bicycle, and return home at midnight. Growing up, little Esther only saw him on Shabbat. When she went to sleep at night, it was a pile of carpets she slept on. My bed was a stock. When the bed was very high, I knew that he had to get all the carpets and to sell them. And when my bed was very low, I knew that he sent all the carpets, and now he has to go and buy you know, other carpets. 58 years later, Peretz still gets up early every day and goes to work. Except now, it's without the bicycle. He doesn't need it anymore. Today, he's known as Melech Hashtichim, the king of carpets. When people hear the Peretz Shkalim, they say, ah, you are from the carpets. He's known in Israel as a carpetman. He's known as a the carpetman. His store, the Peretz Shkalim International Center of Carpets, is in Gan Ha'ir, a flashy shopping center in downtown Tel Aviv. There are Turkish carpets, Afghani carpets, Persian carpets, all stacked in piles or hanging from the walls. Signs dangle from strings advertising major sales. There's this one sign near the ceiling informing customers that, quote, this place has the best and prettiest carpets in the world, exclamation mark. Esther, who is a poet, thinks about her father's journey a lot. He began, he was very little, and uh, he worked very, very, very hard till it was really a big empire. The husband of my aunt could not bring here his sewing machine. He did not succeed here, and he, he died uh, young. And uh, Baruch Hashem, my father could bring here his uh, bicycle. And all the world was really different for him and for all the family. It's amazing how one little thing can change one's life. Esther had to run. So she kissed her father goodbye. A few minutes later, it was time for the daily minion. Ten men who work in the Gan Ha'ir shopping center came to the store for afternoon prayers. Then, when they left, 84-year-old Peretz Shkalim did what his daughter Esther did when she was little. He plopped himself onto a pile of carpets and fell asleep. Daniel Estrin's a Jerusalem-based print and radio journalist. He produced this story together with Maya Kosovir. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Okay, so a lot changed in Israel during those years that Peretz was trying to sell his carpet. Perhaps most dramatically of all, its size. The country tripled its territory during the Six-Day War in 1967. But one thing remained constant. The main event of every single one of Israel's first 20 Independence Day celebrations was a full-blown military parade. Air Force fighter jets, tanks, jeeps, missiles, infantry formations, you name it. The parade rotated among Israel's main cities, and in 1968 it came to Jerusalem, a newly unified Jerusalem. It was less than a year after the huge victory of the Six-Day War, and the parade was billed to be the greatest one to date. 600,000 people attended, a fifth of Israel's population at the time. And as if that wasn't ceremonious enough, the 1968 parade was the very first event televised on the brand new Israeli TV channel. Shai Satran tells us the story of that day. So, I hate to rain on the parade, but it ended up being not only the biggest parade in Israel's history, but also its last. But we'll get to that later. For now, I want to introduce you to someone. I'm Shimon Giller. Shimon was one of the thousands of soldiers who took part in that parade. He was born in 1950, in Poland. I have only good memories from Poland. But at school, the kids and the teachers, they were not anti-Semitic. But uh, there was a difference of being a Jew among uh, un-Jewish uh, children. Many times uh, I was called a bloody Jew or a dirty Jew. But it was just, you know, between kids. Shimon's nuclear family immigrated from Poland in 1958 when he was a kid. They didn't have many other relatives. My father's and mother's families both were in the Holocaust and were almost totally eliminated. His father, a sewing machine mechanic, struggled to find a job in Israel. Our standard of living dropped down very sharply. But all in all, they were very happy with their decision. And Shimon has fond memories of his childhood in their new home in Tel Aviv. He remembers, for example, going to see the Independence Day military parade with his parents. His favorite part? Tanks. The tanks were... The tanks were making a lot of noise. They were huge. When you are small, the tank looks like a mountain. When the Six-Day War broke out, Shimon was a senior in high school. He looked on as his friends, just a year or two older than him, tripled Israel's size. It was a resounding victory, and a swift one. The war was cheap, really cheap for us. 
casualties, yes, but not very much. Yeah, I was at hospitals. I saw one of my friends uh, was shot and died at the beginning of the war. But the price was cheap, really. There was an euphoria. Everybody thought that was a sign from God. Shimon was eager to join the army himself. I enlisted to the Israeli army at uh, August 67, three months after the Six Days War. I enlisted to Golani Division, to the Sayeret Golani. When I asked him about his training, Shimon summed it up like this. To kill, to kill, to kill. Yeah, we were trained to kill. But their very first mission after training was a relatively peaceful one. Basically, it was to kill time. They were sent to take part in the 1968 military parade. The days before were devoted to rehearsing. We sat like uh, puppets, not moving. <laughs> the infantry was marching all the way, three times a day, and we were driving a jeep. Yeah, it was very convenient. At evenings, even though it wasn't allowed, I jumped to a home yes, to see my family. More than anything, it was a much-appreciated break for Shimon and his teammates. And there was one other unexpected perk. Shimon got to be on TV. I didn't know at the time, but I was filmed with a focus on me. They focused on me, and all my friends were very excited to see it because television was not at all homes then. Sure, not all homes had TVs, but those that did were watching. It was the first broadcast of the only Israeli channel. Let's just say that ratings were through the roof. Still, there was at least one home in Jerusalem that decided not to tune in. Now, would you imagine that I would watch it on TV? And I would really... <laughs> of course not. That's Ali Klebo. He was 14 at the time. No, no, no. No, we had no patience. We did not want to see them. It is like seeing a monster in a monster movie. And these were the instruments of the monster. You don't understand how we see you. You think you are wonderful and sweet. Ali is a Palestinian anthropologist and a painter. He was born in Jerusalem, as were his parents, and their parents before them. We asked if he could tell us about his family's connection to Jerusalem. He looked at us, grinned, and asked, How far back do you want to go? You should always bear in mind that my family and Jerusalem are one history. On my mother's side were 1,300 years in the city. And my great-grandfather is buried in the Dome of the Rock. Growing up in the old city, which was Jordan before the 67 war, Ali had never spoken with or even seen Jews. That changed, of course, the day the IDF soldiers entered the old city. In the beginning, people thought the Jews were Iraqis because they did not look like us, they were dark. And they looked like what we imagine Iraqis to be like. So we thought the Iraqis have come to save us. A year later, the military would parade through the now-unified Jerusalem. By then, Ali no longer thought they were Iraqis. The occupation had begun. For Ali and his family, the idea of a unified Jerusalem meant that their home was no longer really their home. So you can imagine when the parade came in Jerusalem in 68 for us, it was highly, 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 highly traumatizing. It was rubbing salt into a wound. The situation was volatile, tense. 
The police wanted to minimize any potential for violence, so they asked the Arabs of East Jerusalem to stay in their homes throughout the day. A bunch of newspapers declared it the Arabs' pajama day. That humor is lost on Ali. Unfortunately, in a macho society, it becomes clever and witty. And people say, ah, how nice. But for me, I found it very offensive. I wondered if Ali's feelings weren't those of an older, more politically aware adult. I mean, as a boy, hadn't he been a tiny bit excited, just like Shimon, by the whole commotion, the tanks and the planes and the missiles? Apparently not. No, I'm not macho. That's your game. <laughs> you cannot assume that all men want to play football, all men want to play tanks. This is another stereotype. Each of these parades ended up costing tens of millions of liot. And liot weren't something the government had in abundance. So there's the obvious question, why do it? Ali, of course, has his answer. It is to glorify the war, to glorify their victory, to show. It was an exhibition. They were exhibiting their power. We have the power to make what we want in the world. We are the strongest military power in the Middle East, and we're here to stay in Jerusalem. Shimon's explanation is different. It meant a lot to the Holocaust victims. After being helpless and without any ability to defend yourself, it was very assuring to see Israeli soldiers with an Israeli flag and Israeli tanks, and it was uh, calming the fear of the Holocaust victims. Whatever the reasons were for holding the extravagant parade, they were quickly reconsidered after that year's military showcasing. There was a growing sense the parades were no longer really necessary, that Israel, now a major regional power, didn't have to display its might so publicly anymore. The very next year, 1969, for the first time in the young country's history, there was no military parade on Independence Day. The point was made in that parade. They did not have to redo it. It would have been an overstatement. People began to look at it as childish. The army also was not as popular as before. For many Israelis, Shimon is one of them. The post-six-day war euphoria was short-lived. Once it wore off, the war's legacy was a mixed one, a sobering one. We had this tremendous victory, and now what? Just six years later, all those shiny tanks and jets and missiles from the parade were put to a different use. And many of Shimon's teammates, those guys smiling from their jeeps on TV, were killed in the Yom Kippur War. Shai Satran is a senior producer on our show. He reported this story together with Katie Pulverman. In 1973, there was a small-scale attempt to revive the parade. It didn't go anywhere, and was cancelled for good the following year. Shalom. 
When I was about 10, my older brother Oren gave me a little plastic basketball hoop as a birthday gift. It had these orange suction cups, and you could attach it to the wall and basically transform your bedroom into Madison Square Garden. Now, I'd spend hours, all by myself, reenacting famous basketball games with a tennis ball. I'd always insert myself, of course, into the roster. You know, Harmon with the ball, Harmon going up for a three-pointer. But all the other players? They were real. There was the Magic Bird rivalry during the 1986 Celtics-Lakers NBA Finals, and there was the heartbreaking Game 7 between Patrick Ewing's Knicks and Akeem Olajuwon's Rockets. But the game I used to recreate more than any other was one that took place six years before I was born. The 1977 game in which Maccabi Tel Aviv faced off against the mighty Red Army team of Seska Moscow. This was all before the internet, and I had never actually seen any of the moves of the players I was impersonating. But still, I'd have fake Olsi Perry block shots, fake Jim Boatwright sink jumpers, fake Moti Aroesti find fake Miki Berkovic for an easy layup. And each game would end with the exact same play. Real Mishi Harman would dribble the ball between his legs as time wound down. With three seconds left on the imaginary clock and the entire crowd on its feet, he'd pass the ball to the wall. Fake Tal Brody, the team captain, would catch it, turn around, and with one second on the shot clock, he'd release a fadeaway from downtown as he, that is, I, fell backwards on my bed. Now, I played out this scenario quite a bit, so I got pretty good at sinking that desperation shot. Tal Brody won the game for Maccabi like 90% of the time. And when that happened, I'd yell with ecstasy and throw victorious fists into the air. I'd make believe that all the other players, Lou Silver, Bob Griffin, even coach Ralph Klein, they'd all pile up on Brody. And then Brody would shake them off, face the imaginary microphone, and deliver his most famous one-liner. We're on the map, he said, and we're staying on the map. Not just in sports, but in everything. Now, working on Israel's story, let's just say that sometimes childhood dreams come true. Hey, hey, Tal. Hi. How are you doing? Okay. Yep, I got to meet my childhood hero. And what does any of this have to do with Yom Ha'atzma'ut? Well, on Israel's 30th Independence Day, in May 1978, there was a small article tucked away in the upper left corner of page 12 of Ma'ariv. Its headline was a quote by an American immigrant who had become the closest thing to an Israeli god. I'm saying goodbye to the ball, Tal Brody declared, but not to basketball. Was retiring uh, bittersweet? Retiring was at the time that I wanted to retire, you know. You can't play basketball all your life. But that wasn't what he had thought growing up in Trenton, New Jersey. He started bouncing around the ball at the local JCC when he was eight. Later he became the star of his high school team and led them to an undefeated season before he was recruited to be the starting point guard for the University of Illinois. When he graduated college in 65, his dream was within reach. All my direction was to become an NBA ball player and then let's say I was 12th or 13th in the draft, the Baltimore Bullets. That's when Tal got an offer that changed the rest of his life. U.S. Maccabi uh, sent me a letter to join the 7th Maccabiya Games uh, with the U.S. team. The Maccabiya is sort of like the Jewish Olympics. 
Tal accepted the offer, and you probably won't be too shocked to hear that the Americans went home with the gold. Tal, however, decided to stay. Nobody could understand why I would go to Israel and give up a career in the NBA. Uh, my plans were to come to Israel for a year, not to make Aliyah, but to try to take the basketball to another level. It was 1966, the year before the Six-Day War. Israel was small, fairly poor, and that meant that there were many adjustments as far as Tal was concerned. You know, coming in from the University of Illinois, 16,618 people at ball game, uh, private plane, the best conditions in the locker room, and coming into Israel and having to go up to Haifa, get our games rained out, or playing in a dust storm in kibbutz near David Bet Alpha, or playing outdoors in the winter. And I always say the same thing. I went to Israel to play basketball, but I stayed there because what I saw the basketball was doing for the country. Tal became a national star. When the Yom Kippur War broke out in 1973, he was abroad, playing with the Israeli national team in Spain. We were able to get back on an LL flight to Israel, and all of us had uh, uh, orders waiting where to go for reserve. The shock of the war and the high number of casualties threw Israel into despair. We lost a lot of soldiers injured and killed during that period of time. And, you know, so in a small country like Israel, it affects everybody. Uh, It hit quite a few families. Up to 1977, uh, during that historical year of basketball, actually the country was basically in mourning. But that basketball season really pulled everybody out of that morning and put smiles back onto the people's faces when our team beat the Russian team. Now, if there's one moment that Tal revisits again and again, it's that moment. February 17th, 1977. The semifinals of the European Championship. It was the height of the Cold War. The Israeli raid on Antebbe was still a fresh memory, and the USSR had long ago broken off diplomatic ties with Israel. Tseska Moscow, who had won the previous four European titles, refused to play in Israel. So the game, in which Maccabi was supposed to be absolutely annihilated, took place in a small Belgian town called Virton. Every rebound symbolized the struggle between Western capitalism and Soviet communism. Every made free throw felt like David hurling a stone from his sling at the mighty Goliath. Sorry, the mighty Sergei Belov. In the end, there was total euphoria. Tal will probably never forget the final score. 91-79. An entire country was in a state of total ecstasy. Right after the game... All the fans that were piled into this small gymnasium in Virton in Belgium just ran onto the floor, singing, dancing the horas. Singing Am Yisrael Chai and Chavenu Shalom Aleichem and picked us up, the players, and, and when they put us down and as I was going to the locker room with all this excitement on the floor, that's when Alex Gilady caught me and it just came right out of my heart. I mean, it, Something that you can't plan in an event like this. You can't plan an Israeli team beating the Soviet Union, you know, at that period of time. It was like really uh, fulfilling a dream and a miracle. Vera 
Tal's amazingly simple sentence quickly became the most iconic soundbite in Israeli history, our equivalent of one small step for man. There was just one minor issue. It, uh, it was wrong. Quick grammar lesson, alamapa means on the map. But bamapa, that's what Tal said, well, that means in the map. So yeah, we were in the map. Do you laugh when people point out that your most famous sentence ever is actually grammatically incorrect in Hebrew? My Hebrew is not the best. I mean, uh, if I knew that I was going to be here 50 years in Israel, I would have went to the Yulpan and studied Hebrew. In my, in my uh, Hebrew, it was correct, you know, as far as, you know. So if it's Bamapa or Almapa, you know, Israelis, they like to judge and uh, they're like... Uh, Yekes, you know, uh, so some some look at it that way, some look at it that way, but the meaning of it, everybody knew. He's right. Everyone in Israel knew that Tal and his buddies had put Israel in the map. And it was about more than just basketball. For many, it was a better late-than-never victory over the Cossacks who had beaten and killed their grandparents in Russia. Maccabi, Kvutsa the team of the country, was, in some very real way, Israel. In the beginning, you only had one television station. And on a Thursday night, uh, you didn't have any Knesset meetings or bar mitzvahs or weddings. Everybody knew that if Maccabi Tel Aviv on a Thursday night at 8.30 is playing, everybody was home or at the stadium watching the game. The streets were empty, yeah. After that huge win, there was one last hurdle. The finals, which were to be played six weeks later in Yugoslavia against the talented Italian team of Mobil Girgi Varese. We had about 5,000 fans that came from Israel to that game to cheer us on. Maccabi won the title by a single point. More than 200,000 people celebrated in the streets of Tel Aviv. It was a national holiday. Prime Minister Robin received us in his premises and he told us, you know, how this season, you know, like the basketball really, uh, how important it was for the Israeli public, you know, to give this spirit back to the public that we can do it. Tal retired the following Yom Ha'atzmaut, 1978. But that game remains a classic. Even today it airs on TV from time to time. Exactly a year later, on Yom Ha'atzmaut 1979, Tal was awarded the Israel Prize. I received a lot of trophies in my life, but this is something really special. It's not a trophy, but it's like saying thank you. And it was very meaningful for me as a new immigrant to Israel, Olech Hadash. In the years since, he ran an importing business. Sporting goods, uh, sporting shoes, uh, sporting wear. He sold life insurance and pension plans. Uh, never imagined myself as an insurance salesman. And then, in 2008, Bibi asked Tal to run in the Likud primaries. Uh, basically, one of the ideas was that I would become the Minister of Sport. I remember you said at the time that you were looking forward to playing uh, some one-on-one with Obama. Definitely, yes. You think you would win? I would say I would, yeah. <laughs> I saw him shoot, so I, I think I would have an advantage. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, I, I, he knows how to play basketball, definitely. He was a senator in Illinois, legislator. He shouldn't know how to play basketball. Tal lost in the primaries and didn't get a seat in the Knesset. But instead he was appointed as a goodwill ambassador who goes around the world talking about Israel. He's become very diplomatic. But at heart he's still a true athlete. And I guess you can never really shed athlete talk. The sky is the limit, you know. Or... How much you put into it, that's what you're going to get out of it. And... You had to take one step backward in order to take two steps forward. And my favorite... If you keep a balanced life, I think you can go the distance. But when all's said and done, for such an unlikely national hero, who has made an Americanism into quintessential Israeliness, and who, though he doesn't know it, scored more pretend game-winning shots in my childhood bedroom than anyone else... Clichés actually do work. You know, to take that ride with Maccabi Tel Aviv together, it's been a beautiful journey for me. If you want to hear more about Tal Brody and the dramatic tale of that legendary 1977 Maccabi team, look out for a fabulous new documentary film called On the Map. It's written and directed by Danny Menkin and produced by Nancy Spielberg, Roberta Grossman, and Hey Jude Productions. It comes out this fall in theaters around the U.S. And that's our episode, part one of 68 and Counting. Next week, in our season finale, we'll pick up our journey with Yom Atzmaut 1988. So we try to end each episode with a podcast recommendation. And today, I want to introduce you to a new show, Her Money, with Jean Chatsky. It was created to empower women to live better by focusing on their finances, and it's just really, really good. The show features interviews with inspiring women from Gretchen Rubin to Ariana Huffington. It's the place to learn about earning more, saving more, investing wisely, and building the financial life you want. God knows I should implement some of the advice they give. Anyway, you can find Her Money on iTunes, Stitcher, or jeanchatsky.com. All those places, minus jeanchatsky.com that is, is where you can catch all of our episodes. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all under Israel Story. And I'm reminding you one more time to go to our site, israelstory.org, and donate to our ongoing listener drive. Thank you so much to all our listeners who already contributed. You make the show possible. And speaking of which, how could we possibly end an episode without my usual spiel about looking for a sponsor? Yep, that's still happening. So to all you potential sponsors out there, all I can say is this. We have got a phenomenal audience. People just like you who are all interested in and engaged with Israel. So if you want to support our show and reach a lot, a lot of people, email us at sponsor at prx.org. We just finished our live show tour in the States. It couldn't have happened without the amazing vision of the folks at the JCC Manhattan, and especially Megan Whitman and the generous support from Faye and Hartley Koshitsky, the Charles H. Revson Foundation, Zabars, and Zabars.com. Thanks to Ronit Jacobs and Netta Shacham at the Oshman Family JCC in Palo Alto, to Liba Kornfeld and Leslie Fishman at the JCC New Orleans, and to Aideen Sachs, Don Bear Novikov, and Rena Fisher. Lastly, a huge thanks to our friends in Chicago, 
to Anne Lansky and the iCenter team, to Lori and Benji Sagarin, Rabbi Michael Weinberg, Bruce Crane, and Beth Sayer at Temple Beth Israel. And, of course, to Binny and Mark Swislow and Laura, Leon, and Bracha Finkel, who became our families, literally, during our stay in Chicago. Both the episode and the live show were created together with the one and only Adrian Mathewitz, who spent a whole Independence Day-infused month with us in Israel. Israel Story is brought to you by PRX, the public radio exchange, and is produced in partnership with Tablet Magazine. Go to tabletmag.com slash Story to hear all our previous episodes. Our staff includes Yochai Meital, Shai Satran, Roi Gilron, Maya Kosover, Shoshi Shmulovitz, and Rachel Fisher. Itai Hyman, Amir Faktor, and Katie Pulverman are incredible production interns. Adam Rose is our music intern and wrote original music for this episode. Julie Subrin's our executive producer. I'm Ishi Harman, and we'll be back next time with part two of 68 and Counting. Till then, yalla bye, and don't forget to fill out our listener survey.
נשאל גם אותי ביום קיץ כך הולך, מה טוב לי בלב ובפה? מה טוב לי, מה טוב לי? מה טוב לי, מה טוב לי? מה טוב לי, מה טוב לי? ולו רק מפעם שזהו סתם בוקר יפה Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 